Hope you have a Bible with you, something that you can open up, um, preferably, if not something that you can turn on, that you will start with me in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Now I realize the notes behind me on the screen, your bulletin is going to say Mark 15. Do not worry, we are going to get there for the majority of our time, but I want to start in Mark chapter 11 this morning. And then also if you came in, you got one of these bulletins on the back of that. There'll be some notes if you want to reference that as we walk through God's Word together this morning. So Mark chapter 11 is a common passage, a popular passage you might hear um, referred to or addressed on a Sunday morning like this. Mark chapter 11, the scripture tells us in verse 8, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So historically speaking, we always think about this Sunday morning as being Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday because this is the day of the week that we recognize that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the last time. As the timeline unfolds, he comes into Jerusalem on a Sunday, and then Sunday all the way through Thursday night, he does his final type of ministry um, there in Jerusalem and around that area known as Holy Week. Thursday night, he's in the garden knowing what lays ahead of him. Late Thursday night, he is arrested Friday morning. Thursday night into Friday morning, he's going through the examination, going through the trial period, if you would call it that, And then on Friday, he's crucified. So we come this morning and we recognize that this represents the triumphal entry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we call this Palm Sunday, and you will hear many times people will talk about the Hosanna, and they'll talk about it. It means, Lord, I pray to save me, or just save me, I pray. And there'll be lots of conversations about the excitement that we have of knowing that a Savior has come for us. And that whole term of Hosanna can be praise, can be adoration, it can be recognition of what is going on. And we sometimes come to church and we can really, really excited because we just start to think about the fact that God sent His Son for us. But as I was thinking about it these last several weeks and, ta- and thinking about where we come in on Palm Sunday, so often we come together on Palm Sunday and we look at the passage in Mark chapter 11 and then... This following Sunday, when we come together for Resurrection Sunday, we skip straight to the end of Mark chapter 16, and we skip Mark chapter 12 through 15. So what I want us to look at together this morning is Mark chapter 15, and we're going to zero in on verses 11 through verse 15, but we're going to start in verse 8 for the sake of context. And the question that I want to put before all of us not you, all of us in this room this morning, is what does it take? Now let me give a context to where I'm going this morning. Mark chapter 15 and verse 6, Mark records in his gospel account, all the other, all three other gospels all have some type of a record about the arrest, have some type of a record about the uh, trial, if you will, the examination of Christ, is something that all of them include. But here in Mark's account in verse 6 of chapter 15, he says, Now at the feast, he, and this is talking about Pilate, um, the the Roman uh, governor, if you will, he used to release for them one prisoner whom they asked. 
And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named, or there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now this is where I've just kind of dwelled on these last couple of weeks. In Mark chapter 11, you see the scene and the, the information that Mark gives us, the picture that it plays in our mind, is as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's on the colt, the donkey, there's a crowd. There's a whole group of people that have gathered together. Some are laying their cloaks on the ground so the donkey might walk over them. Some of them have cut down palm branches and laid them down. They're, they're, they're lining both sides of the roadway and they're shouting and they're singing and they're dancing and they're celebrating and they're all excited because Jesus is here and Jesus is coming and, and you have this large crowd that is going around shouting and in jubilation saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then five days later, another crowd is assembled. I'm not saying it's the exact same people. The text doesn't tell us whether it was or it wasn't. But another crowd is assembled. Another throng of people are assembled. And instead of saying Hosanna, and in adoration and recognition of who Jesus was, this crowd has gathered together. To yell, crucify him. And what has stuck with me is what does it take for you and I in this room to go on a Sunday from singing Hosanna to on a Friday saying crucify him. And maybe in a way that we can maybe relate to together this morning, I put there at the top of your notes, what does it take for you, and I, and I could have put you and I, but what does it take for us to turn away from Jesus. Because I can't help but maybe even speculate and maybe even wonder if there were some that were there along the road on Sunday as he's coming in that are hearing the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. Maybe there could be some of these same people that are there in the crowd yelling crucify him. And whether we say it with our mouths There are many times through the course of our lives that on one day we're saying he is the Lord of our lives and the next day we're saying we don't care if he even exists. And we will go in between one state of another of being people that are faithful and obedient and following after the way that God has for us to saying, you know what, he can be on the cross because we are going to be in charge of our own lives. And I think if we're being honest with each other, there are times... Seasons in life that we find ourselves turning away from Jesus. And I wonder if we ever think about what does it take to cause us to turn away from Jesus. So here in Mark 15, 
I want to just put before you four suggestions, four ideas, or maybe even I put the way, the way I put it there in your notes, four reasons that we turn away from Jesus. And not necessarily in a way of trying to accuse any of you all here this morning, but maybe in a way of saying, be on guard, be careful of these things, because we can come together in here on a Sunday morning, and we can be excited, and we can say, oh yeah, 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 Jesus is Lord. And then we can go out in this world, and we can live a totally different life. So what are some things that cause us to turn away from Jesus? Well, back here in the text, look at verse 10. So I, I've read verse 6 all the way down through verse 15, so we have, a say, have kind of a setting of the context that is what is going on. Now, to kind of give you a little bit more understanding of the neighborhood where we're at, Jesus on Thursday night, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The religious leaders had said, we want to arrest him and we want to, uh, uh, we want, we want, we want to end this idea. Jesus is coming and he's upsetting what we're doing and we have an agenda. We have something we want to do with him. And so, so they arrest him, but because they did not have the proper legal authority to kill him or crucify him, they took him to Pilate. And they, all these chief priests brought him to Pilate and said, hey, we've got this guy guilty. This is the last part of chapter 14. We got this guy guilty and we want you to do something. So then Pilate comes in, he examines Jesus, and he doesn't find anything guilty in Jesus deserving of death, especially deserving of the death of crucifixion. So when we come into chapter 15 and verse 6, Pilate is a bit of a quandary, if you will, a juxtaposition, if you will. Because on one hand, he has a man that everybody else says is guilty of all of these wrongdoings, but yet Pilate doesn't find any guilt, and yet all these people are demanding, all these people are wanting, all these people are claiming, we want you to crucify him. So when you come here in verse 6, that's why Pilate is coming and he's trying to find a way to release him. And in verse 10, it gives an explanation about the motivation behind Pilate. He says, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. The first reason that I want you to see out of the text this morning that the first reason that we turn away from Jesus is corrupt influences. Corrupt influences. If you look down further on in the text, you'll notice that it is the crowd. Yes, the chief priests have come to Pilate and say, we want you to crucify him. But when, that fi when Pilate finally makes a decision down here in verse 12, 13, 14, and 15, it is because the attitude of the crowd, it's because the voice of the crowd, it's because the insistence of the crowd that Pilate finally gives way. And, and when it comes to the crowd, what was the crowd doing? The crowd was doing what they were being influenced and stirred up to do. That's why it says in verse 11, but the pre the chief priest stirred up the crowd. It's not a far-fetched idea to think that there are influences in our lives that are seeking to stir us up. I put it there in your notes. All influences have an agenda. Notice the agenda here in this passage right here. These crowded together and the chief priests are going through and saying, you need a call for the release of Barabbas. You need a call for the crucifixion of Christ. These commoners paid, maybe not knew what law had he broken, what reason had he come. They didn't understand. All they knew is they were being stirred up by someone else. An influence had come into their lives. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. Because this influence that we see here in the text, the chief priests, the religious leaders, they were not concerned about the spiritual health of the people. They were not concerned about the souls of the sheep. 
They were only concerned about the status of the leaders. So that's why Pilate says there in verse 10 that Pilate realized that the chief priests and religious leaders, the issue was that they're envious of Jesus. They're envious of what Jesus was doing. They're envious of what Jesus was teaching. They're envy of what Jesus represented. They're envious of the uh, attraction and the following that Jesus' followers were, were bringing to him and what Jesus was uh, garnering from the people around him. They were jealous of Jesus. And so they began to influence the crowds against Jesus. Every influence has an agenda. And all influences point to a God. Now you see there in your notes and you see behind me on the screen, I put a big G and a little g. I didn't know the right grammar, grammatical way to put that correctly. But the idea is that all influences are either pointing to a God, big G, the God, creator, or they're pointing to a little g, God, an idol, or a distraction, or something that keeps us away from God. Douglas Wilson, a pastor out in Moscow, Idaho made a statement the other day that is just stuck in my mind. And he said, when it comes to our walk with the Lord, it's not a matter of whether, but a matter of which. It's not a matter of whether, it's a matter of which. What do you mean by that, Spence? It's not a matter of whether the influences will point you to God or not. It's a matter of which God will those influences point you to. It's a matter of which, not whether. Or it's not whether, it is which. We've got to get this idea that there is no such thing as neutral influences in the world around us. There's no such thing as a neutral influence. Either that influence is pointing you to God or it's pointing you away from God. And here in the text, you have this crowd that is gathered together and they are coming together because there's a spectacle happening. There's a trial happening. There's an event happening. And what does it say here in the text? It said the chief priests were stirring up the people. To do in the second rendition of Hosanna. To have a time of response and an invitation time to give their heart to Jesus? No. And the crowd was being subjected to corrupt influences. Some of you students that are still in school cannot be overstated the effect and the power of corrupt influences. And us parents can sit back and we can say it till we're blue in the face and you young people will say, well, but you did it so I can do it. Yeah, and we learned that it wasn't the right thing to do. And us parents, we even start to think, well, I got to protect my child from corrupt influences while we're sitting down in the recliner watching filth on television. We have to be aware that we are not immune to corrupt influences. There's not an age where cussing stops to affect you. There's not an age where inappropriate scenery stops to affect you. You can't say, well, a 12-year-old can't listen to it or watch it or be around it, but I as a 40-year-old can. If it's corrupt, it's corrupt. So here in the text... You see this crowd. This crowd is influenced by corrupt influences, but not just that. There's a, there's a second reason that we see that Mark gives us here in the text. It was the second reason why they turn away from Jesus. So the first reason was is corrupt influences. The second reason was popular opinions. <coughs> popular opinions. Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, in verse 11, 
It says, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released from them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, who's he talking to? He's talking to the crowd, the whole people that are there together. And he says, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? So Pilate is confused. You want me to release Barabbas, but what do you want me to do with Jesus. So what does it say? Verse 13, and they cried out again, crucify him. And then Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? He is confused. He has misunderstood what is going on. Now you think everybody in the crowd knew exactly what Jesus was being accused of? Or you think it was just the mob mentality? This person was going along with it. This person was going along with it. And next thing you know, you had a group, you had a movement. And if you think that you have enough numbers of people and you have enough voices of people and these people have enough passion in them, then it must be true. But I want to remind you this morning that numbers, voices, and passion do not equal truth. Just because you have a big crowd over here that says this is the right thing to do doesn't make it the right thing to do. Just because the majority of people or the poll numbers or all these other factors are coming into play doesn't make it right. And that is the danger where we're at right now and the point in our society is that who controls the information controls the narrative. You don't see here in this text that you had these people gathered together and saying, well, we would like more information about whether he is guilty or not. You don't see these people come together and say, you know what, maybe we should talk to Jesus ourselves." And you don't see these people come together and say, well, chief priest, can you give us an explanation of what Jesus has done? No, they just blindly follow what the masses are saying. So you have this crowd that is gathered together. Now, some of them may have known what was going on, but it may be akin to the crowd that gathered together in the amphitheater in Ephesus. Paul was there in Ephesus doing ministry. You can find this in the book of Acts. He's sitting there doing ministry, and, and these people were coming to Christ, and they were coming, and when they would come to Christ, they realized they didn't need all these idols, and so they stopped buying idols. And so the people there in Ephesus that were making the idols started losing money, and they started losing income, and so they got mad because they understood that it was Paul's fault, or they thought it was Paul's fault because he was leading all these people to Jesus. So they stopped buying idols and they stopped serving idols. And so all of these idol makers got upset. They gathered a group together. They got in the amphitheater and they were hauling and screaming and yelling. And it says there in the text in Acts that some people were there and didn't even know why they were there. They were just caught up in the flow. They were just caught up in the movement. And we've got to be careful about giving way or trusting in the movement or the direction of popular opinion. Just because it's popular. Or I, let me put it, there, I put it there in your notes. What is popular is often unbiblical. And what is biblical is often unpopular. And yet so many times we get hung up thinking, well, that's it. This generation below me, they have this whole terminology called FOMO, fear of missing out. It's the idea that if someone else is doing it, they don't want to miss out on doing that. And, and so you start following what is popular. They start following the crowd. You start having to wear the clothes that everybody else is wearing. You start having to uh, listen to the music that everybody else is listening to. You start having to have the same terminology that everybody has. You start to have to do all these things because you want to fit in and because you want to be liked and you don't want to be ridiculed. You don't want to be the weird person on the outside. And we even do that in our adult lives. We want to be accepted by the people around us. 
Just because it's popular opinion doesn't make it right. You know, growing up, some of you may, some of you younger people, this may be an old thing, but growing up in my generation, you always heard this deal. You go to your mother or your father and say, I want to do this. No, you can't do that. Well, little Johnny's doing that. Oh, well, if little Johnny was jumping off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? Well, it depends on how deep it was. I mean, I could be talked into it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against it 100%. But the idea was, is just because everybody in your surrounding sphere appears is doing something, doesn't make it right, doesn't make it smart, and doesn't make it good for you. So why is it that a social media says that we believe it? Why is it that we're more prone to listen to the reports coming out of the news or the reports coming off the internet or the reports coming through our phone instead of turning to God? Why is it that we are more influenced by popular opinions than in the errancy of Scripture? There is somewhere along this line that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to die to the desire to be popular and liked. Now I get it. You want people to like you. I want people to like me. But at some point, we're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to be liked by people? Or am I going to be lauded by God? And at some point, that decision has to come. And one of the reasons why we turn away from Jesus is because of the corrupt influences or because we're more worried about following popular opinions. But there's a third reason that I want you to see here in the text. The third reason that I see is disappointments. Disappointments. What causes us to turn away from Jesus? Not only corrupt influences, not only popular opinions, but disappointments. Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, in verse 13, they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? And then they continue to shout all the more. I can't help but wonder if it's not because they are disappointed in who they thought he was and now who they realize he was. Let me maybe further explain this a little bit more. When he's coming into town, both his followers and his disciples thought that he was now going to overthrow the Roman Empire. That he was going to set the thing straight. That now the Jews were going to be in charge politically and socially and culturally. And they thought, this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come in. He's going to go zap, 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 like some Harry Potter stuff. And he's going to set everything right. And they're going to be out. We're going to be in. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes in and he starts preaching mercy and grace and love and enduring when the hardships and the trials come. And Jesus comes in and he starts preaching about eternity and how these things on this earth will one day burn up. And he's preaching about you must follow, leave everything and follow after him. He talks about this is where you have this final week, you have the greatest commandment ever given. Matthew 22 is a place where you find it, and then you also find it in Aaron Mark's account. But he tells them to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the people, these people, they don't want to hear that. They don't like hearing that. 
So when Pilate comes in and he tells them there in verse 12, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? You have a whole group of people going, he is not a king. A king would not allow himself to be tried and to be beaten and to be mocked and be subjected to the hardships and the persecutions and the merciless treatment from the chief priest. A king would not stand before Pilate and be subjected to Pilate. A king would not do this. And they find themselves in a state of disappointment. The disciples, they thought they were going to Jerusalem. They thought that Jesus was going to, enter, enter, going to start his kingdom. And when Jesus says, I'm going to die, they're like, oh, that's not what we planned on. Garden of Gethsemane, whenever the religious <coughs> soldiers showed up and they arrested Jesus, what happened to the rest of the disciples? Well, it tells you there in chapter 14 and verse 50, they all left him and fled. And then you have the account of Peter, that Peter's standing outside, and Jesus already said, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, I'm not going to deny you. I'll die before I deny you. And then what happens right before he's standing in front of Pilate? Peter denies him, and he goes out and he weeps. Judas, who for so many years looked the part, played the part, acted the part, betrays his rabbi, and then in guilt and shame goes out and commits suicide. Disappointments. Disappointments. And here in the text, Pilate is talking about Jesus being a king, and they understand that he is not a king. See, what they wanted was a king, and yet God gave them a savior. So many times we want answers to our political problems. We want answers to our cultural problems. We want answers to our marital problems. We want answers to our family problems. We just want the answer, and we don't want salvation. And Jesus, he didn't come and he didn't fulfill all the hopes that they have. He did not give them their way. He came in and said, I have a way that God has given me to go and this is what I'm going to do. And all these people are going, but yeah, we want you to do this and we want you to do this and we want you to do that. And he's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I didn't come here to do it all of your way or to make you happy or to satisfy your wants and your desires and your intentions. I'm not here on your plan. I'm here on God's and oh, praise the Lord, because you and I now have the benefit. We have the benefit of looking from a 2,000 rear view look. So we understand what is taking place. We understand that on the third day, God's going to raise Jesus from the tomb. We understand that this was required to pay for our sins. We understand that this is what was required for forgiveness. We understand that this was required for salvation. But if you're there, and you're there in that setting, and you're there on that Friday early morning, and you're there in the crowd, you don't know all of this is going to happen. You just know that somebody said he was a king, and he's not a king, so we don't want anything to do with him. And there's a danger. There's a danger of unchecked disappointments in our lives today. The disappointments may be something like this. You prayed for a loved one, and your prayers for that loved one went unanswered, in your opinion. And now you're disappointed with God. There was an opportunity or a path in life that you wanted to take. And you prayed and you said, God, let me do that. God, would you give that to me? And God closed that door and now you're disappointed. A friend that went through a hardship and you prayed and you said, God, do something, intervene. And God didn't do something and you became disappointed. And if we're not careful, these disappointments will start to collect. Collect. 
And I put there in your notes that unmet expectations, which is just another way of saying disappointments, they can become acidic. Acidic. Acid is something that erodes. Acid is something that eats away. Acid is something that takes the life from. Acid is something that continues to just tear apart at what is alive and healthy and well. And if we're not careful, these disappointments, these disillusionments, these misunderstandings that we don't know what God is doing, we don't understand what God is doing, we don't know how God is doing it, all of these things come and they become to be disappointments. And when these disappointments start to mount up, they become discouragement. And when the discouragement starts to build, we're looking for someone to say, what is the source of the discouragement? So we start to find people to blame. Blame for my discouragement. When the blame then takes place, it leads to bitterness. The bitterness then goes to sin and sin then turns to acid. And so next thing you know, we find ourselves disappointed because God didn't do it the way we wanted him to do it. Jesus didn't do what we wanted to do. All these things alive aren't going the way we wanted them. And so we find ourselves disappointed, and when we get disappointed, it's all God's fault. It's so funny that on a Monday, we'll pray, God, will you bring healing because we think he's the only hope for healing. And then on Wednesday, when he didn't heal, we'll be mad at God because he was not able to heal. So one day we're singing Hosanna, and the next day we're saying crucify him. And we turn. We turn away from Jesus. And I, and I wonder how many people, how many people are not in here this morning because they're disappointed because they felt like God didn't do what they asked God to do. And I wonder how many of us in this room this morning have struggled in our faith and we've struggled in our faithfulness and we've struggled in our obedience to God because of disappointments because we thought, God, I deserve this. God, I was owed this. God, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God, I believed that you would do it and then you didn't do it and now I'm disappointed in you. If we're not careful, these disappointments can start to take root and they turn us away from God. So Pilate is asking, the Pilate is saying, why? What has he done? <coughs> And in my sanctified imagination, I just can picture them saying, you know what, we thought he was this, but he's not. So we don't care what happens to him now. But then there's a fourth reason. And the fourth reason I want you to see, I find in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. The fourth reason that we will turn away from Jesus is selfish desires. The first reason is corrupt influences. The second reason is popular opinions. The third one is disappointments. This fourth one I want you to consider with me is selfish desires. So the way I understand the text and the way that I work through this text, Pilate didn't then consent to the crucifixion of Jesus because of the testimony of the chief priest. He didn't consent to the crucifixion of Jesus because of the guilt that he found in Jesus. Pilate did not consent to the crucifixion of Jesus because of the crime or because of the actions of Jesus. Pilate consented to the crucifixion of Jesus because of the attitude and because of the actions of the crowd. Now, so you have this crowd and they are being consumed with selfish desires. We want him crucified. We don't want Barabbas to be crucified. We want Barabbas to be released. We want to see Jesus hanging on the cross. But where did that come from? Where does that come from? Where do those desires come from? 
Well, if you look back up in verse 11, as I already told you, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd. Other gospel accounts give this idea that these people are gathering and people are going through there and they're inciting and they're getting them all excited and they're getting them all stirred up and they're getting all these things going and going and going and going. But yet, if you think about it and if you just take time to ponder it, think, their desires had a source. What are the sources of our desires? What formulates our desires? Do we think about what or where our desires come from? I submit to you this morning, and my, my opinion is many times our desires are formed and, they're, and, and they come about as a fruition of influence or peer pressure. Or as James talks about ourself and the sin and the desires of our flesh. But how many times do our selfish desires are really just the fruit of Satan's lies in our lives? And if we're not careful, these selfish desires will start to take root and these selfish desires will start to impact us and these selfish desires will start to turn us in directions that we do not want to go and directions that we can't explain why we went that way. We just find ourselves saying, you know what, for whatever reason, this feels good, I enjoy this, and I'm moving after it. And we've got to be on guard because these selfish desires are not always from God. Here in this text, these people are saying, crucify him, crucify him. And they're, why, 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 why are you doing this? Because our selfish desires have ran rampant. And I think it's also telling to think about the idea that your desires reveal your devotions. What you desire is what you're pursuing. If you were to walk in here and you were to have a big old giant bucket of bananas. Hey, Spence, you want some bananas? No, thank you. Why don't you want any bananas? Because I don't desire bananas. You were to walk in here with a whole bucket of ice cream and you were to say, Spence, you want some ice cream? Yeah. Did you bring another bucket for you? I am all about the idea of my desires. Why? Because that is what I'm devoted to. So you look around your life, you look around your schedule, you look around your checkbook, you look around your social media, and the things that you are devoted to are the things that you desire. And your desires reveal your devotion. Why? You're Because you're going to pursue after the things that you worship. And so many times we turn away when what we want comes before what God says. So we've got to be careful about these selfish desires and the ability we give these selfish desires to then to turn us in the direction that he wants us. Because if you just raise a child for just a few months, you'll understand that that child, the only thing that child really cares about is what they want. The only thing that child cares about is them. And in the same way, we are a bunch of spiritual children running around here only caring about what we want. Sidewalk Prophets released a song called You Love Me Anyway several several years ago. And, and the way they put it here in, I think it's called The Bridge, I think. It's not, a, it's not one of the stanzas or the verses. I think it's The Bridge. <clears throat> but the way they put it there just encapsulates so many times what I have been guilty of in my life. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'm going to read it. See, now I am the man who yelled out from the crowd for your blood to be spilled on this earth-shaking crowd, ground. 
Yes, and I turned away with the smile on my face, with the sin in my heart, trying to bury your grace. And then alone in the night, I still called out for you, so ashamed of my life, my life, my life. But you love me anyway. Oh God, how you love me. Yes, you love me anyway. It's like nothing in life that I ever known. Yes, you love me anyway. Oh Lord, how you love me. I think about that because there have been so many times in my own personal life that selfish desires and what I wanted took priority over what God wanted. And it causes me to turn away from God. So how do we look at these four reasons and think about it in application to our lives today? Well, as a church, we've done this for quite a while now. We're talking about how does this help inform and equip us to build families, teach the Bible, and be the church. Well, how do we do that? How do we look at this idea of this text here in Mark 15 and put it in a way into practice in our homes? Just three things, and then we'll be done. Make the home the primary family influence. Do not let the ball field be the primary influence. Do not be the sport, the the, the uh, stock show be the primary family influence. Do not let be the classroom be the primary family influence. Let your home be the primary family influence. Are you saying the church doesn't matter? No, I'm saying the church is on Sunday. The home is seven days a week. You and I as parents and as grandparents and as aunts and as uncles, we have an opportunity to influence our home. God is not something we talk about on Sundays and Wednesdays. God is something that is true 100% of the time. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we let a lot of influences penetrate our homes and then we wonder why our kids want nothing to do with Jesus. Because we taught them to compartmentalize their faith. We taught them that there were other influences in this world that were more important. So make the home the primary influence. Secondly, teach God's word, not man's opinions. Teach God's words, not man's opinion. You had these people, and they're there in Mark 15, and they're being thought, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. And not one did they go, hey, where'd you get this from? What scripture are you getting this from? They just blindly read it. Well, he's an author of a book, and he's a speaker, and he does this, and he does that. So that means what he says must be true. And you never compare it with scripture. You never compare it with the Bible. You never even stop to think, does this make sense? I listened to a clip by Kenneth Copeland. And he was explaining why he needed a $15 million private airplane. And in his explanation, after he just got to telling you that you needed to give money so that he could buy this airplane, in his explanation, he had talked about who he had bought the plane from. And it was some celebrity that was well, that supposedly was well known on television. And he made this statement. He said, this guy made the TV, the, the, the airplane so cheap, I couldn't help but buy it. That's what some of you ladies pull when you go to the store and you're like, it's on sale. Now I have to buy it because it's on sale. <coughs> so Kenneth said, he said, you know, the guy who's selling the plane made it so cheap I couldn't help but buy it. And then he said, you know what, my work is so important that I have to be able to get around the country. And I am so important, I can't be encumbered by commercial tra 
air traffic. You mean you're so important and that what you perceive as God's work can't go on without you. So therefore, you need to spend $20 million on a plane so you can get there five minutes faster. No, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it's not logical, it's not rational. And sometimes they will give you these explanations like thinking you're going to go, oh, that makes perfectly good sense to me. Think. That's why God has given you a brain. That's why God has given you intelligence. And that is why God has given you wisdom and discernment. We need to be aware that man's opinions are not always God's word. Teach God's word, not man's opinions. Last one, be the influence, not the influenced. Be the one that is influencing other people. Do not be the one that is being influenced by other people. Sometimes we think that we're going to put a white shirt on and we're going to jump in a red mud puddle and we're going to make the red mud puddle white. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. In my high school years, there was an establishment called Boss Hosses. I kind of find it funny now that it's the local police station here in Wellston, but it was called Boss Hosses. And I would go down there, and I was playing pool, billiards. And I was going down there, and I remember I'd go down there, and I'd spend some evenings down there playing pool, and I remember the preacher coming up to me at church and saying, Spence, you shouldn't be down there. It's not the place you need to be. That's not the kind of environment you mean to be in. That's not what you should be doing. I remember looking at that preacher and going, oh, well, I'm inviting them to church. No, it wasn't. I was putting a white shirt on, going in a red mud puddle, trying to tell myself that I was going to make the mud puddle white. And we've got to be careful about having this attitude that I'm going to go around the corrupt influences and they're not going to have any impact on me. We've got to be careful about going in with our guards down and ignorance all around us, assuming that we will not be impacted. Am I saying that you do not go to sinners? I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is we need to be on guard. We need to recognize the influence and the danger when we put ourselves around corrupt influences, and we need to guard and make sure we are the influencer and we're not the influenced. Yes, we need to tell people about Jesus. Yes, we need to go where there's lost, hurting people. Yes, we need to go to them. But we need to go to them so that we are the influencer, not the influenced. And yet too many times we put ourselves in a position to be influenced instead of influencing them. So what does it take for you? What does it take for you to turn away from Jesus? I'm not saying this morning that you're here and you're yelling crucify him. I'm not saying that it would be even in the remotest conceptions of your heart that you would want to see him die not cross. But what does it take for you to go from saying he is my Lord and Savior to saying he has no authority or influence in my life? What does it take for you? An opportunity? Disappointment? A distraction? What does it take? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song that Greg has selected for us to sing with. 
my invitation to you is if there is something that has taken you off course this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to come back to where God would have you to be. Come back to the road where you're shouting, Hosanna. Come back to that place where He was in charge of your life. Maybe this morning you need to come and let me pray with you about something that is on your heart or your mind. Maybe you need to come here and pray at the front or maybe right where you're at, you just need to say, God, this morning, is my life crying Hosanna or is my life crying crucify Him? You bow your heads with me.